Welcome to More Than Mythos, the podcast exploring the mythological threads that weave us all together. I'm Morrigan, and thank you for joining me on this ancient journey to understand our modern world. This project really started out as my senior research in college, looking at divine representations of sex and war goddesses, and all these important aspects that had been hidden away or erased because they didn't fit into patriarchal ideas of women. To be honest, it was absolutely infuriating thinking of all the lost history, the misunderstandings, and the misrepresentations of strong female figures in mythology or folklore. I truly grieve for some of these figures and what this means for so many women living in modernity who never had access to this information. I think the world would be a really different place if some of these stories were told, so I fully intend to share them, along with many others so we can all explore our past, present, and future together, and I thank you for joining me in this. To start More Than Mythos off with a bang today, we'll be taking a closer look at the succubus, an incredibly influential and misunderstood mythological figure. And a quick reminder that I am speaking on topics that are usually from cultures that are not my own. I am always trying to be mindful and respectful of that. I do my best to properly research and provide unbiased information but there are many versions of mythology and history, many of which disagree with each other. Thank you for understanding that these topics are not black and white and require lots of care. So to start us off, the succubus. So what is a succubus? She can be categorized as a female demon commonly found in mythology and folklore, like really commonly found. They are particularly known for appearing in men's dreams to seduce them through various sexual activities, but were also often associated with infanticide or even drinking blood. In modern media, you're probably going to see the image of the succubus as a super hot demon woman, but her original image was actually a hideous female demon that stole men's sperm in order to procreate. The word succubus actually comes from the Latin word succuba, which means to lie beneath, which indicates her sexual proclivity. You may be more familiar with succubi than you think, She's so much more than a myth at this point, she's evolved into more of a historical and mythological archetype. You may also know succubi by a different name, such as femme fatale, red woman, demon bride, witch, dominatrix, temptress, the list is pretty much endless. Succubi have been generalized to pretty much encompass evil women all over the world. First, let's take a moment to explore the concept of the archetype. An archetype is a universal symbolic pattern often found in mythology, folklore, and pretty much every single religion. They are overarching ideas that pervade the corners of almost every single culture we've encountered, which is incredibly significant. Fields like comparative history and comparative mythology pay special attention to these universal ideas and myths. 
So Carl Jung, one of the fathers of modern psychology, can help us understand archetypes a bit more. Jung believed that humanity shares a collective unconscious, full of knowledge subconsciously passed down directly into the individual's psyche, almost like an inherited instinct. He wrote extensively on archetypes as a way to better understand the way we experience or think about both ourselves and others, but also as a way to explore cross-cultural behavior. One of Jung's primary archetypes was the anima in men and the animus in women. Jung believed that archetypes like the anima often manifested themselves into people's dreams. He was a big advocate for doing dream work in therapy as he saw dreams as a window into the subconscious. So when we look at the succubus, a demon who visits men's dreams, we could argue that this is a projection of fear or uncertainty directed towards men's undeveloped feminine side. The succubus is one of the oldest depictions of women, and has been passed down through many generations in many cultures, much like the idea of the collective unconscious. And the succubus is a pretty nasty depiction. It's so bad, it's actually dehumanizing, and this is a key point to remember. So, we have the morally corrupt and bloodthirsty she-demon murdering infants and seducing men to possess their phallic power, thus humiliating him and defacing the image of women everywhere. Now, when we look at the historical depictions of men who are victim to the succubus versus women who are victim to the incubus, the male equivalent of a succubus, we notice something very interesting. Women were thought to be more inclined to fall prey to succubus since they were thought to be morally weak. It was almost expected that they would be visited by incubi because they simply weren't strong enough to resist. It was also thought that they simply imagined the visitations, and their claims were often disregarded, which sounds pretty familiar if you ask me. <laughs> In comparison, men who are visited by succubi are depicted as very feminine and weak. Being repeatedly visited by a succubi was thought to cause illness, or even eventually death, like sucking the life force out of you. To have your seed stolen and an offspring created with a demon sullied your bloodline. It was thought that succubi were unable to reproduce on their own, so they stole sperm from men and impregnated human women in order to produce their demonic offspring. Where the myths get a little hazy is how sperm from a human man gets implanted in a human woman, but still comes out as a demon. As with many myths, there are some aspects that we simply don't have answers for. but. The politics of heirs and the passing down of property made the protection of your bloodline a huge priority, but at the same time, we really need to examine the shame and weakness historically associated with a man being sexually dominated by a woman. And even bigger than that, we really need to examine masculine shame as a force of history. Mary Ayers wrote a really interesting book called Masculine Shame, From Succubus to the Eternal Feminine. Her book discusses the succubus as a manifestation of the collective unconscious, or as an archetype of the shame of being overcome by women. 
Mary Ayers actually describes a succubus as a container for masculine shame. I love that description. Now we can tie back in that aspect of dehumanization that I mentioned earlier. So men in power used this archetype as a tool of dehumanization to justify the oppression of women for thousands of years. So women who disobeyed men or were sexually empowered became automatically associated with succubi. This could have been to validate the oppression, but may have stemmed from this fear of shame. But at this point, it's kind of like a chicken or an egg argument. Like, we're not totally sure, you know? Were women oppressed prior to the succubus narrative? Yes, in many cultures all over the world. But maybe they were oppressed for different reasons or in a different way. And this was also incredibly dependent on the culture that we're speaking about, too. In this way, when we break down the history of the succubus, which we can trace to even the most remote parts of the world, we can start to potentially trace the origins of the patriarchy on a systemic level and the eventual demonization of women as a whole, and especially women's sexuality. So when did the succubus truly begin to rise as such a potent figure? We can trace her journey back to the fall of goddess cults and the rise of men as warlike gods or warrior monarchs, which does deeply correlate to Christian and Catholic empire building in Western history specifically. I think it's helpful to look at some of the really key figures of the succubus that you may already be familiar with. So the classic example is Lilith, declared queen of the succubi by authors during the witch hunts of the 16th and 17th centuries, which is pretty funny because she wasn't always known as that, and then she was kind of used as like the jumping off point for a lot of succubi discourse. The Old Testament even calls her, and I quote, a night hag, which is just honestly hilarious. <laughs> and you see this term hag used really often in older literature to insult women, and even today. And for those who don't know, Lilith was Adam's first wife in the Bible who disobeyed him. She refuses to be subservient and she pronounces God's name, thus gaining power to fly out of the Garden of Eden. The second episode of More Than Mythos is actually going to be focused solely on Lilith, because she is a very complex and multifaceted figure in both history and mythology, and she's really worth exploring on her own, so stay tuned for that. So now we see the shame of Adam being originally attracted to Lilith, who disobeyed Adam and God, which most likely contributed to the shame around desire and sexuality that many cultures experience to this day in the Western world. And of course, these dynamics probably existed prior to colonization, but Christianity is a huge force of spreading these ideas via colonization. So what does this fear and shame stem from? Rejection and an inability to control women, probably. We see this all the time in modernity, unfortunately. It seems like there's always another story on the news of some unfortunate 21-year-old college girl walking to her car, she gets catcalled, she ignores him, and then her body turns up somewhere. So this shame stemming from rejection and inability to dominate really should not be taken lightly, 
as it seems that a lot of our modern patriarchal systems still revolve around it, and the violence that this dynamic can incur is honestly pretty staggering. Some other mythological figures to call upon here would be Salome from the Bible, Circe from Greek mythology, and in the non-Western world we have the Rusalka in Slavic lore, the Yukiona in Japan, and the Yakshini in India, and even historical figures like Cleopatra have been ascribed very succubus-like characteristics. So Circe is commonly known as a sorceress, a witch who lives alone on an island, who uses herbs and magic to turn her enemies, most often men, into animals. You may know her as an antagonist in the Odyssey, where she turns Odysseus's men into swine and keeps him imprisoned on her island for a year, and the implication here is that he was forced to be her lover. So Circe has gradually evolved from the image of a sorceress to a very emasculating threat, and this was done through reinterpretations of her by male painters and authors in almost all eras following the Greek and Roman empires. To me, this really looks like a projection of that masculine shame onto this very powerful woman. But in the last 50 years, she's been repurposed by feminist authors and became somewhat of a feminist icon, a woman who wouldn't submit and used her own strength and smarts to fight back. So if we turn our gaze to the east in Japan, the Yukiona is a spirit, or yokai, that can be dated back to the Muromachi period. And it's important to note that the Yukiona exists without any influence from Christianity or association with Lilith. These myths were truly manifested all around the world. The Yukiona can be roughly translated to Snow Woman. In some lore, she takes on a succubus-like role of preying on weak men and sucking out their life force using sex or an icy kiss. She's also seen killing infants by weighing them down with ice and snow until they suffocate from the cold. There's even some stories where basically people will take her in from out in the cold and she'll like pretend to be a lost traveler. And when she gets into your home, she spirits away your wife or children and leaves in like this puff of snow or this like puff of frigid wind, leaving the men very bewitched and unaware of what's happened. But her origin story is quite humanizing, actually. Yuki Ona are sometimes thought to be the vengeful spirits of women who are deceived or murdered by men. So again, we see a very complex figure that's often reduced to these characteristics that are feared or sensationalized, which may be a product of projection. So, how does the demonization of certain characteristics in women persist to this day using the succubus archetype? Well, we see it all the time in the stigmatization of sex work or victim-blaming sexual assault survivors. I'm sure that if you were kind of up-to-date on internet drama during quarantine, a lot of women and non-binary people have been really, really highly publicly shamed for being sex workers via OnlyFans or etc, etc. There's like a thousand platforms at this point, but it was 
pretty hard to see like these women who are really just trying to survive the difficulties of quarantine and the financial hardships of being unable to work completely demonized by a lot of men and even other women for using their sexuality to monetarily support themselves. And then we also have this aspect of victim-blaming sexual assault survivors, portraying them as, you know, the temptress, the vixen, you were asking for it, all of this rhetoric we can kind of trace back to a lot of succubus archetypes. So at the end of the day, we have to remember that this is really about control. It's not about ethics, it's not about right or wrong, it's being able to be the person who gets to tell women what they get to do with their body, with their time, with everything really. So there's still this really negative connotation of succubus in modernity, but the visual language has evolved quite a lot. We now, more often than not, see portrayals of a hypersexualized female body that is irresistible to men, but still meant to be consumed. So, how did we go from hideous, blood-sucking she-demon, to feminist icon, to sexual object? This dynamic of a lusting after what we can't have has been studied on a psychological level that when we are denied that which we want, our brain takes away the happy chemicals, the serotonin, the dopamine that you feel when you experience something like desire or connection. Humans are basically addicted to the happy chemicals, and I know that I am, and continue to seek that which is out of reach. And when rejection does arrive, the shame pushes this need to regain control, to assert dominance. When we examine a pattern like that and try to line it up next to the evolution of the succubus, we see her representations in mass media follow a very similar pattern. She was first an uncontrollable woman and thus demonized by men and even other women who bought into society's portrayal and then larger structures like Christianity or Catholicism. Next, we see her grow and change into the fire of the feminist movement. Women claim her as a champion and use her image and story to empower. So, when women attempted to regain control over the narrative of Lilith or the succubus archetype, men once again felt threatened, sought to regain control by popularizing her as a sex object, an archetype no longer to be feared, but conquered. They portrayed her as a sex demon with insatiable desire, which is technically true, but her desire was not originally to please men. So some modern depictions in media that you might be familiar with would be Yennefer from The Witcher game and the Netflix show. She is a classic succubus archetype. She's portrayed as the dark and irresistible sorceress who manipulates men with her feminine wiles. But ironically, if you're familiar with her character, you'll know that she does actually start out as a hideous sorceress. It's kind of interesting that when we see this evolution of Yennefer, it runs somewhat parallel to some of the historical changes that we see. In the show particularly, she is definitely depicted in the beginning as a woman to be feared, undeserving of love, She's a hideous, magic-wielding creature, completely undesirable. But when she makes her transformation, she has claimed her sexuality, she is bold and empowered, 
but still presented to the audience as a hypersexualized woman to be consumed. And the irony is that these two realities often exist in tandem today in modern society and media. A lot of women who are empowered and portray themselves as sexual beings, which is completely natural, everyone has the capacity to be a sexual being, they're still sexualized by men, either on the internet or in person, or even sexualized by other women who are policing each other. And you've really gotta wonder if men target women who are confident because they wish to conquer them and tame this wild sexual woman archetype. So now, if you're still with me, we can touch on this topic of the politicization of pleasure. Some modern feminist scholars and the women's liberation movements argue that women have a right to sexual pleasure, which symbolizes autonomy for a lot of people. At the beginning of the succubi's journey, she was the one experiencing pleasure. She came to a man in his dreams and coerced him into sex to steal his seed and create offspring. She fulfilled a desire to procreate using men. Now, a lot of modern images of succubi depict them as sexually insatiable, but basically existing to please men, which is so, so far from where she originally came from. It really does matter who is receiving pleasure in these scenarios, because whoever is receiving the pleasure is the one asserting dominance, or basically winning. Because for some reason, it always has to be a fight. We haven't been able to find this balance where we can all just experience pleasure. For some reason, this desire to dominate and overpower has pervaded most of history and is still incredibly prevalent in sexual and romantic dynamics to this day. There are definitely some cultures that are exempt from this, but in the Western world and some other parts of the world as well, especially ones that have been touched by Christianity, colonization, Catholicism, definitely a lot of imbalance there. In some circles, we see the act of women experiencing sexual pleasure as not only subversive, but very empowering. And this was something that was shamed and denied for so long in so many cultures around the globe. Pleasure as an expression of being, of existing, of disavowing this shame. So now, for many people who identify as feminist, Lilith is a champion. She was the first feminist because she refused to push aside her own pleasure to diminish herself for Adam and ultimately God. She demanded to be equal, was refused, and simply left. But you could easily argue that Lilith is the Western world's feminist champion. There are lots of strong and sexually empowered portrayals of women from many ancient cultures from all over the world. A great example would be the goddess Ishtar from Mesopotamia, who murdered her own rapist and demanded men be her sexual consorts. So we have lots of these examples, but I think a lot of people in the Western world and in some early feminist movements kind of considered themselves to be pioneers of feminism when that isn't necessarily true. But examining the succubus archetype can hopefully lend us a hand in understanding some of the modern dynamics we currently experience and where they came from. 
I hope you enjoyed listening to this More Than Mythos episode, the very first one, as much as I enjoyed creating it. The succubus is infinitely fascinating to me, and I feel like I see her essence everywhere. And maybe now you'll see it too! Thank you for joining me, and I hope you'll be back to hear more about Lilith and all the myths that tie us all together.